0: Hey everybody, Curtis here. Palace intrigue, historical context, and a whole lot of war. Coming to you next on The Backdrop. Welcome to The Backdrop. We're starting our series on Jeremiah, and there is a whole lot more going on in the book than we are going to be able to talk about on the weekends and the sermon. And so what we thought we could do is go back to this format that we've used before. Just like before, we're going to use it to get into some of the other details and historical context and, and the sorts of things that are there in the passage and are interesting to talk about and think about, but don't actually apply to the particular thing we were trying to do in the worship gathering. Now, one of the things we're going to try a little bit differently, because we are also wanting to get our You and a Few groups going, where people are getting a chance to, virtually at this point, get together to connect relationally and encounter God, we hope that some of those groups might want to go through Jeremiah with us as the thing that they do to encounter God together. So we're hoping that the backdrop could be one avenue for that to happen. So you and your few could listen to this podcast and then use it as a starting point for discussion as you get together. So we will provide some discussion questions in the show notes that you can use to reflect on your own or that you can use as a part of your you and a few to have some discussion together. So that's what we're going to do. And we hope that it is helpful for you and your group moving forward as we go through Jeremiah. Since this is the first chapter of Jeremiah and it kind of serves as the introduction, there's a lot packed in to the first few verses even. And so the first thing we're going to do is talk about some of the historical context. And there's two parts to that discussion. One is the big picture geopolitical empires conversation. And the other has to do with some of the Jerusalem and Israel specific aspects of the history that are setting the stage for what's to come in the rest of Jeremiah. So we're going to do this conversation in two parts. Jeremiah starts by telling us that the word of God came to him in the 13th year of King Josiah. This would be around 627 BC, and it's an interesting time period with a lot of stuff going on historically. So I'm going to give the basic historical overview of what's happening in the region, kind of like the geopolitical region of Israel, and uh, a little bit of comment on how that affects the stuff that's going on in the book of Jeremiah. We already know that this book is written to the exiles in Babylon. That exile happens in 587, about 40 years after Jeremiah's messages start coming. But to get our context, we're actually going to go about 100 years before the messages start coming to Jeremiah. Because that is around the time that the destruction of Israel begins. As some of you know, after King David and King Solomon, who had unified Israel into one nation centered around Jerusalem, after their reigns, the kingdom begins to splinter. And what happens is that the northern tribes of Israel form what is often called Israel, and the southern tribes, because they include the largest tribe of Judah, are often called Judah, and they split into two nations. And this is important because in the 700s B.C., As Assyria is the kingdom that is the dominant political player in the region, as it comes to power, there's a series of rebellions against Assyrian control and Assyrian influence in and around Israel, meaning the northern kingdom. So in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel rebels and the Assyrians attack. They destroy the capital city of Samaria And they deport the population and basically they put an end to Israel as an independent state. Now, some of the earlier prophets that we get in the Old Testament are speaking around this time and warning of this destruction. Jeremiah is one of the later prophets. So at that point, the northern kingdom of Israel is basically no more and exits the story. Jeremiah is active in the southern part of the kingdom, Judah. And that's where we're going to focus from here on out. Now, I'm using Christopher Wright's book on Jeremiah. It's called The Message of Jeremiah uh, for some of this historical context. And so if you're interested in that, I would I would recommend it. But there's kind of a series of kings from here on out. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. If you've read the book of First and Second Kings, you kind of know what that's like. So I'm going to give the overview and try to make it as, as understandable as possible as we go quickly through this. So about 15 years after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, A new ruler comes to power in Assyria. Now, when new rulers come to power, that's a chance to test them and see if you have any interest in avoiding their control over your land to see if you can get out of it. Well, the king at the time in Judah, Hezekiah, who is Josiah's grandfather, he joins a revolt that is led by Egypt. Egypt is used to being a great power in that part of the world, and so they see this as an opportunity to try and push back. Well, it doesn't go so well. Jerusalem ends up being besieged by the Assyrians. And in the Old Testament, we get the story of God delivering Jerusalem from being destroyed. The problem is they do have to submit politically and through tribute to the Assyrian Empire. So Assyria gains control politically over the region and influence, even if they are not destroying Judah at that point. Judah is at best a nominally independent nation at this point the next king in Judah, Manasseh, decides that instead of resisting, he just wants to submit completely. He is heavily criticized for this in the pages of scripture, partially because in addition to submitting politically, he submits religiously as well. These were closely tied in the ancient world in a way that they're not anymore. And it's important to understand how much pressure Manasseh probably was under to show his loyalty to Assyria by adopting Assyrian religious practices, which he does wholeheartedly and which the prophets and scripture criticize him for heavily. Jeremiah would have been born in kind of the last years of Manasseh's reign and would have grown up in a country that is fully submitted politically and religiously to the Assyrian empire. Josiah becomes king at eight years old, And he is around the same age as Jeremiah. We don't know exactly how old Jeremiah is, but likely Josiah would have been around the same age as him. And what happens in 627 BC is, again, a new ruler comes to power. And again, this is an opportunity to push back. And in fact, two years prior to that, Josiah had begun pushing back by launching a huge reform of the religious and moral practice of Israel. You can read about this in the book of Second Kings, starting in chapter 22. Josiah is praised as one of the greatest kings after David and after Solomon because he turns the people of Judah back to worshiping God. I don't think it's a coincidence that this happens right around the time that the last strong king of Assyria is dying. And in fact, in 627, which is the year that this king dies, that's also the year of Jeremiah's call. Again, I don't know if this is a coincidence. It seems like from what we see in the pages of scripture, from what we see in history, that God often uses the opportunities presented by political events to work whatever work God wants worked, so to speak. So anyway, 627, Josiah has launched religious reforms, turning Israel back to their God. Jeremiah is called by God to bring a message of warning and destruction What's interesting is Jeremiah doesn't much interact with these reforms that other parts of scripture tell us Josiah undertakes. They are happening at the same time as some of his messages are coming out. In fact, they might have been in response to some of the messages that Jeremiah brings, but he doesn't say much about them. Different scholars have different theories for why this might be. I think one likely one is that the book of Jeremiah is compiled for those in exile. Those who already know that the reforms Josiah launched were short-lived and that ultimately the people of Israel didn't listen to Jeremiah all that much. In any event, Josiah and the people of Israel are not the only ones who notice that the last strong king of Assyria has died. In fact, there's a young prince in Babylon, a nation that is used to being great itself, who sees an opportunity as well. That prince's name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he shows up a lot in the pages of scripture because he starts to push back against Assyrian control of Babylon. And in fact, over the course of a a decade or two, defeats the Assyrian armies in Nineveh and then comes down and defeats the Egyptian armies as well. So Babylon is firmly established as the next great thing, the uprising power. And so what Josiah and the kings that come after him in Judah have to decide is, are we going to submit to Babylon or are we going to resist? And as Christopher Wright says, Jeremiah's answer is unambiguous, unwelcome, and unheeded. Jeremiah, interestingly enough, says we need to submit, not religiously, but politically. But the kings of Judah decide otherwise. Now, this is where there's a whole string of kings' names, and we see those in the first couple verses of Jeremiah as well. Most of them are sons of Josiah, and most of them have short reigns. <laughs> and things start to accelerate at this point. So in 597, One of the sons of Josiah named Jehoiakim chooses to rebel. Nebuchadnezzar marches against the city of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim dies or maybe was murdered by people who didn't much like his decision to resist Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim's son becomes king. This son surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar and Jerusalem is spared, therefore, from being destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar takes this son captive to Babylon, along with a lot of the ruling class of Jerusalem, And Nebuchadnezzar installs a different son of Josiah named Zedekiah as basically a puppet king in Jerusalem. This seems like a bad decision on Nebuchadnezzar's part because not too long after, in 589 BC, Zedekiah also chooses to rebel. And this time, as Christopher Wright says, Nebuchadnezzar finishes the job. Jerusalem is surrounded and after an 18 month long siege, it falls to the Babylonian armies in 587. 587 is kind of the turning point in Judah's history when the city is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and the people are taken off into exile, or at least most of them are. There are some who are left behind, Jeremiah being one of them, presumably because the Babylonians thought that he was on their side because he had been saying that the people of Judah and Jerusalem ought to submit to the Babylonians for so long. They had gotten wind of this apparently. And so Nebuchadnezzar decides to leave Jeremiah there because he thinks he'll be a good ally or something like that. But at that point, the people who are left behind are trying to figure out what do we do now? And there was a large group that was advocating we need to flee to Egypt because maybe they will protect us. Jeremiah resists this heavily, but ends up being taken to Egypt with them anyway, where presumably Jeremiah dies and his 40 years of being a prophet for God come to an end. Now, let's turn to a smaller bit of historical context here that comes out in the first few verses of Jeremiah, and that is also, I think, pretty interesting. It starts the book by saying the messages of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anatot in Benjamin's territory. For those of you who are not well-versed in the geography around Jerusalem, Anatot is a city just a few miles from Jerusalem itself. It's in the territory of Benjamin. If you remember from the book of 1 Samuel, the first king of Israel, Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And some of the main religious centers from that period of Israel's history were also in the tribe of Benjamin's territory. It's only after David comes to the throne and builds Jerusalem and only after Solomon builds a temple there that the center of religious and political power moves to the city of Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings 2, we get the story of what happens after David's death. David had a loyal priest named Abiathar, but after David dies, there's a question of which of his sons is going to become king next. Now we know that Solomon ends up being there, but Abiathar who had been loyal to David, picks another of David's sons. And in 1 Kings 2, verses 26 and 27, we find that Solomon is not very happy about this and banishes Abiathar and his family and the priests with him to Anatot. So Jeremiah has grown up in a city whose power and influence has been overtaken by Jerusalem a few miles to the south and whose priests, who had once been the ones helping David have been banished from Jerusalem. In effect, Abiathar had picked the wrong prince to back in the succession fight, and he and his family pay the price by living in relative obscurity from then on. And from that family comes Jeremiah. And so you can easily imagine Jeremiah having grown up in a family resenting the power of the temple in Jerusalem in some sense. A family that has nostalgia for the time when they had influence and also potentially a family that would have been fairly critical of the monarchy that had descended from Solomon because they think a different son should have been king after David in the first place. Now, why do I bring all that up? Well, one, because it's interesting, I think, (laughs) that there's these little nuggets hidden in passages of scripture that you might never really notice unless you're really paying attention. But two, as I think came through in the first part of the historical background that we were talking through, This was a complicated time in Israel's history. There were competing empires, competing political messages, competing religious messages, and it would have been really difficult to know what the right thing to do was. And when Jeremiah comes and says, this is the right thing to do, when a whole lot of the other priests and prophets were saying something different, and we'll see that as we go through the rest of the book of Jeremiah, some of the competing messages that were um, swirling around at the time. But when Jeremiah comes with this different message, it would have been really hard to know that he was right. In fact, you can imagine why he might have been rejected by a lot of people as having an axe to grind. Oh, you're Jeremiah from Anatot. Oh, so you're going to criticize the king? You're going to criticize the temple? Huh, I wonder why that is. You're still mad about what happened 100-something years ago when your ancestor was kicked to the curb by Solomon. It raises the question, How do we know we're hearing from God? When there's competing messages, a challenging situation, an unclear path forward, how do we know it's God who's speaking? What do we do to sift through the noise and figure out what God's words actually are? In fact, along with that question, I wanted to highlight two of the images that God uses when God's words come to Jeremiah. I mentioned these in the sermon this week, but when God speaks to Jeremiah, It comes in the form of images. In both cases, God asks Jeremiah, what are you looking at? And in the first case, Jeremiah says, well, I'm looking at the branch of a tree. (laughs) And in the other, he says, well, I'm looking at a pot of soup. But then God goes on to make some pretty profound theological statements about God and what God's going to do based on those images, using them as a jumping off point. And I think that's an interesting framing of how God chooses to speak. Okay, so we have our historical context out of the way. There's obviously a lot more detail we could have gone into, but I imagine that was probably enough for most of you. And from here, we'll have a couple of shorter segments that won't be quite as in-depth. Okay, so the first thing that I want to highlight is some of the uh, words and themes that show up all the way through this passage. The first one is war. Now, there's the obvious context of war that... These exiles have just lived through a war, but it's kind of interesting how often war or warlike messages come up. The first is Jeremiah's objection. I am a young man. Another way of translating it would be, I am weak. I'm not a warrior. And that makes sense of, then, God's response to Jeremiah, which is to not be afraid. God's response is not, you're a young man, you don't know how to speak. Well, I'll teach you how to speak. That would be the obvious response to someone who's just saying, well, I'm young, I don't know how to speak. God does say he's going to give Jeremiah God's words in his mouth, but he also says, don't be afraid because I'll be with you to rescue you. Those are the words that God speaks to Israel when war is coming. I'll be with you to rescue you from the armies of Egypt or from the armies of Assyria that are coming. All through this chapter, God is connecting Jeremiah and what God is going to do for Jeremiah with what God does on behalf of Israel in battle in other parts of the Old Testament. And in fact, if you look at the things that God says to Jeremiah in verse 10 for what Jeremiah is supposed to do, I'm appointing you this day over the nations, over the kingdoms, again, kind of a military image of conquering other nations, to uproot and pull down, to destroy and overthrow. To build and to plant, one of the scholars that I was reading was making the point that these words of uproot, pull down, destroy, overthrow, a lot of them have resonance in the idea of siege warfare. They're similar words that would be used to describe a war that ends in the siege of a city, just like Jerusalem was besieged. And then also, what's interesting here, and this is getting into like the nitty gritty of Hebrew poetry because Jeremiah's words are poetic in nature. The way that they're written here and presented in chapter one, they are poetic. This story is poetic. And one of the central features of Hebrew poetry is something called a chiasm. A chiasm is when there's some number of elements in a, in a description or an image or a poem, and they're arranged in a symmetrical way from the center on out. So in this example of it in verse 10, you can look from the outside, The words of what Jeremiah is supposed to do is to uproot and to plant. The first and last metaphors are agricultural. Move one in. To pull down and to build. They're kind of construction images. And then in the center, the center two, to destroy and overthrow are military words. A chiasm was used to highlight what was in the middle. Not that the other words are unimportant or irrelevant, but the most important words are put at the center. And when they're arranged in a chiasm, they, sometimes scholars will call it, like in this case, an A, B, C, C, B, A format. The A is the outside, they match up. The B is the next one in, they match up. The Cs are in the center, they match up. The Cs, the ones in the center, are the ones that matter the most. The one that the author is trying to emphasize, the poet is trying to emphasize. So in this case, the war metaphors are what God is trying to emphasize in his words to Jeremiah. And then the chapter ends with more war imagery. Jeremiah is compared to a fortified city that's going to be attacked, maybe besieged, but not overthrown. They'll battle against you, but they won't overcome you because I'll be with you to rescue you, God says. Again, these are more war images, the same words that God used to say to Israel as a whole. I am going to protect you. I'm going to rescue you from your enemies in the sense of those who battle against you. But what's especially interesting about all of this is the way that the war imagery interacts with the other theme that shows up all the way through, which is a theme of words, God's words, Jeremiah's words. Because Jeremiah is being compared to a warrior in a lot of ways. In fact, in verse 17, he's described like a warrior getting ready for battle. Some translations say, gird your loins. Uh, John Goldengay says, you're to put your belt around your waist, get up and speak to them. Now, ordinarily, you would hear, put your belt around your waist and go out and fight them because they're, again, the words for a warrior getting ready for battle. But God says, get up and speak to them. And all the way through chapter one, even though Jeremiah is being described as a soldier, almost, he's not going to fight a battle, at least not literally or physically. Instead, he's going to bring the word of God and the word of God is going to be fought against. (laughs) so to speak. So you see Yahweh's message came to me. I don't know how to speak. And God responds, "Speak anything I command you." Then Yahweh comes and touches Jeremiah's mouth and says to him, "I'm putting my words into your mouth. Yahweh's message came to me. I'm watching over my message or over my words to put them into effect." Yahweh's message came to me a second time. And again, "You're to gird up your loins, or put your belt around your waist and go and speak to them." All the way through the chapter, God's words are the weapons in this battle. And God's words are the ones that are going to be fought against. And Jeremiah is the soldier who is using those words in this war of words, if you will. Now, the last thing about the first chapter of Jeremiah that I want to highlight here today in the backdrop is the way in which, and I think this is really fascinating, Jeremiah is identified with the people of Israel or maybe who the people of Israel should have been. And here's what I mean. All the way through, you see language that Yahweh is using to describe Jeremiah or to say what Jeremiah is going to do or be, that is parallel to the way that Israel is described in other parts of Scripture. So the first example of this in verse five, before you came out of the womb, I set you apart. Now set apart and holy are in some ways the same word. They're they're from the same root words. And that is what Israel was supposed to be, set apart. A people who are partnered with God doing the work of God in the world. But now, Jeremiah is being described that way. Jeremiah is set apart. And for the same purpose that Israel was set apart, to do the work of God in the world. And then we've already talked about how in several instances in this chapter, God promises to be with Jeremiah to rescue Jeremiah. Again, using the same sorts of language that God used to describe what happened in Exodus and what happened in other instances where God's people are in trouble. God rescues them. And then the last example of this is how Jeremiah is described as a fortified city. In verse 18, God says, I'm going to make you a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the entire country. They'll battle against you, but they won't overcome you because I'll be with you to rescue you. Jeremiah is being described as a city, just like Jerusalem, except instead of Jerusalem, which was destroyed, Jeremiah is a city that won't be overcome it's almost as if Jeremiah is being described as taking the place of Israel or taking the place of Jerusalem. The difference being that God is with Jeremiah. God is faithful to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is faithful to God in a way that Israel is not. Israel, because of their idolatry and injustice and all the things that are to come in the rest of this book, is a city that was destroyed. Jeremiah is a city that endures. The difference being that God is with him. In this sense, Jeremiah is kind of the beginning of the remnant of faithful people that God is putting together, that God is calling the exiles to be in exile. Jeremiah is a model for them, is the first among them, and is the one that the exiles can choose to emulate. There's also a sense in which Jeremiah is like Jesus here, because Jesus also is the faithful one out of Israel, the one who is faithful to God puts his trust entirely in God, and fulfills the role that Israel was supposed to play in the world on behalf of God. So there's some interesting resonances with how Jeremiah is described and how Jeremiah is identified with Israel or with Jerusalem in this passage. So that's it for the backdrop this week. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope you found it helpful and interesting, and I hope most of all it will provide good discussion and or reflection for you and your few. We'd love any feedback from you about how this went for you and your few or just you individually. And we'll talk to you next week.